worship team. Great, great worship this morning, as always. Ushers, if you would come, please. Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 10, verse number 8. He said that his mission was to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. But then he adds something very important. He says, give and you shall be freely given. God gives us all the good things that we need, amen? And he's faithful to do that. And all he asks of us is that we, obe- that we be obedient in giving back to him that which he has asked us to give, commanded us to give. So, Heavenly Father, we do give in obedience to your word this morning. And, Lord, we give cheerfully, not grudgingly, but cheerfully, knowing that you will never make mistakes, Lord, with what we give. And your kingdom purposes will be accomplished in our giving. So, Lord, bless gift and giver alike, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. thank you for your giving and Brenda and I and I know I can speak on behalf of Melissa and Ashley as well want to say thank you for all the Christmas gifts the cards Uh, they were such blessings to us and I I only pray that we give back to you as much as you give to us because uh, we we sense and feel your love in very tangible ways and for that we are very grateful I know it's after Christmas and the time for giving um, at least giving gifts is probably already passed, but there are a few people this morning that I want us to especially recognize for things that, that are done both in, uh, in the face of everyone and things that are done probably even more importantly behind the scenes. And so if you would, uh, guys, I'd like for you to come up here as I call your name. Gary Salaska, where's Jacob? Jacob left me. Come on up here, guys. And Brian Butler, would you come on up here, please? You know, these guys do a service for our church that somebody go get Jacob. He's probably back there snitching a donut. Come on up here, guys. Come up right beside me. Of course, we all know what Jacob does for us. Week in and week out, he's so faithful to carry out our worship, and we appreciate it so very much. Sorry about that, Jacob. Uh, looks like you had a little coffee spill there on the way. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I thought I was the only one that, I thought I was the only one that did that. I'm sorry, and sorry to point that out to everybody. To you. <laughs> but we do appreciate these guys, and uh, Jacob, we just want to give you a token of our appreciation, and not so much in the wintertime, but in the summertime, 
our, our grounds are taken care of, mowed every week so beautifully. And, and you know, those are things that we, we sometimes take for granted. And Gary, we want to give you a token of our appreciation for that. Thank you. We appreciate you and love you. Thank you. And this guy here, how many of you have noticed him when you come into church? He's not just out there parading back and forth like a polar bear. He's he's doing a service for us. And not only is it a service to, to protect us in the event of an emergency... But he helps, I noticed this morning, he helps our elderly out in and out of the the front doors of the church. And he does this so faithfully. And we just want to say thank you, Brian. Uh, It's not much, but we we appreciate all that you do, which is much. All of you guys. And we do appreciate it. Let's give him a hand this morning. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. Okay, where are we? Now that all of you have practiced for a week worrying about nothing and praying about everything, how's that working? Has it helped you in in fighting this addiction to worrying that we talked about last week? You know, if you're like me, it's easier to practice praying about everything than it is worrying about nothing. Amen? I was worried yesterday that I wasn't going to make it past the 16th hole out at the golf course. I thought my grandsons were going to have to take, carry me the rest of the way. But I just put into practice what I preached. And I even parred number 17. Amen? Amen? So, <laughs> oh, I tell you what. We are in our 14th segment of our sermon series and. Some of you may rejoice at hearing this, but next Sunday is going to be part 15, and it'll be the conclusion. So I appreciate your patience. I I, I always enjoy preaching from the book of Philippians. And, and, and you know, I I mentioned that it's easier for me to practice praying for everything than it is worrying about nothing. And the reason for that, I believe, at least, is that each of us are still works in progress. Amen? Amen? We're works in progress, growing into spiritual maturity day by day by day. And honestly, worry is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Immaturity. And before you start feeling badly about being spiritually immature, if you're still prone to worry, let me just share with you two things. One, you're not alone. And two... Every one of us need to grow spiritually, not only for our addiction to worrying and and all those kinds of things, but for many, many other reasons. Uh, You know, growing in in the image and likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a day-by-day process. And not until the day we stand and see him and Embrace him face to face, as John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2. Not until the day that we see him are we going to be fully like him. And so from now until whenever that happens, we are to be in the process, and this is precisely the reason that I've t- entitled this message, we are in the process of trying to grow up. Not out. Up. Grow up in the Lord. The longer I live, the more I realize 
that the real battle in life is not the aging process, but the maturity process. Every one of us, we grow older involuntarily. We're, we're victims of growing old. We don't, we don't have a choice about getting older, but the challenge is growing up as we grow old. The thing about growing up is that it's involuntary. Or, excuse me, the thing, the thing about growing up or maturing, excuse me, is that it is a choice. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of an old baseball pitcher his name was Satchel Paige, one of the few, one of the early black baseball players way back in the 50s. But the truth of the matter is, Satchel Paige pitched in the major leagues until he was, anybody know this answer? 59 years old. 59 years old, he was still pitching. And he once said this, and I love this, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? Now, that's profound. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? I've encountered very mature people at the age of 11. I've also seen men and women who maintain a zeal and enthusiasm for growing in the Lord in their 80s and 90s. And I say that to say this. Age is not the battle. Our attitude toward growing up is the real battle. The scriptures talk about this over and over. Let me just give you a couple of of scriptures before we move on into Philippians. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, these words, No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. In every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The Apostle Peter reiterates that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 2. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that it may grow you up, that you may grow up into salvation. The writer to Hebrews in Hebrews 5.14 says these words, Solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then again he says in chapter 6, the first part of verse number 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Growing up. Becoming more like Jesus. Now from those passages we can conclude that the scriptures very clearly admonish us to learn to take responsibility for our actions. Actions like discernment. Discern before it becomes, deserve thing, discern things before it becomes obvious. Act like life isn't really as harsh as it seems. Let your attitude soar even though your circumstances may lag behind. Each of those descriptions are examples of spiritual maturity. (laughs) You know, maturity is is kind of a, a difficult thing for us to grasp. It's almost like trying to hug the Goodyear blimp. (laughs) You know, you have (laughs) obviously you folks don't watch sports as much as you need to be. It's kind of like having the desire to do it, but how do you you really get your arms around it? 
And, and it's, it's so, so very important in our lives that we, we grow and mature, particularly in the things of God. The thing about maturity is, first of all, it's, it's consistently moving forward. It's always being developed. And secondly, it's, it's living one's life relatively free from adolescent behavior. How many of you have ever acted like a child as an adult? Ask your spouse right quick or your significant other. They'll give you a better answer. It's being responsible for one's own actions and motives. I looked it up, and maturity is defined as a developed and discerning competence as to how to live appropriately and change rightly. So how is maturity shown? How can maturity be measured in our lives and in the lives of others? Well, first of all, as I said earlier, maturity is displayed when our concern for others outweigh our own concerns. Remember chapter 2, verses, what was it, 3 and 4? Paul says this, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then he adds this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Maturity is also displayed as we discern the presence of danger or evil before it manifests itself. It's a sign of maturity when there's just not knowledge present, but the wisdom to know how to use that knowledge. Um, it's not just strength, but it's, it's stability. It's not just high ideals, but it's, it's the discipline to carry out, carry out those high ideals. Maturity is being willing to change once it's established that change is needed. Now, I read this quote, and I'm going to share it with you. I, I apologize. I don't have the source of the quote. It was just a quote that I found, but I, I like what it says. It says, Maturity is the ability to do a job whether or not you're supervised, to finish a job once it's started, to carry money without spending it, and to bear an injustice without desiring to get even. Now, let me just say that if you can claim victory in three out of four of those things, you're more mature than most people. The bottom line is this, that we will never com attain complete maturity in this life. But we are to be building these stair steps of maturity uh, uh, that lead us to becoming what God created us to be. And, you know, I used to think that this was, this was only uh, for old people. <laughs> but now that I are one, uh, I, I found it to be true in my life that as I get older... I become more rigid, more, more uh, what's the word I'm hunting for, more defensive, and set in my ways. Set in my ways. Anybody else join me in that? You're finding that you're becoming set in your ways, and if anybody tries to challenge your ways, you get very defensive about it. Because you're rigid. You're, you're locked in. Now, i got to tell you, that worries me about me. So... <laughs> I have to remind myself, worry about nothing and pray about everything. Uh, and that, that does still work, by the way, even when it comes to aging. And all of that brings us to this fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, 
before I read the text that I'm going to use for this morning, we have to understand some things about Paul's life at the time of this writing. He's two years away from his death. He's thought to be in his mid-60s, much like myself. And at this point in his life, Paul is modeling this wonderful maturity about his circumstances. We've discussed his circumstances at length through the course of this series. He's imprisoned, he's in chains. And that brings us to verse 10 of chapter number 4. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, catch this, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul's back at this rejoicing thing in the midst of his circumstances. He's not paralyzed by negativity. He's not wrapped up in the ravages of, of pessimism. If you read verses 10 through 13, I find in there four characteristics that point to Paul's maturity. Very quickly, in verse 10, he's affirming. His description of the Philippians is the opposite of most people who have opportunity but who lack concern. Paul affirms their concern that they have shown for him even in his situation. Even though he hasn't been with this church in Philippi for years, he affirms that he is well aware of how concerned they are about him. That brings us to verse number 11. And I love this verse. Verse 11 shows us that Paul is content. Let me give you a test, a real quick one. How many of you could find yourselves content in a dungeon with chains on your arms and your feet awaiting what might possibly be your death at any moment? I thought so. And yet Paul says, I'm content. That's, that's not natural. It's supernatural. It's something that you can only attain out because of a relationship with Jesus. There's not many people in this world who you can really say, who can really say about themselves, I guess I should say, that they're content. For Paul, whether it's sunny or stormy, whether he's on top of the mountain or in the depths of the ocean, whether he's liked or disliked, he says, I'm content. I'm at peace. I'm okay. I hope you can understand what I'm getting ready to say. Most people are like thermometers, but very few are like thermostats. Do you understand the difference? 
A thermometer measures the atmosphere around it, while a thermostat regulates the atmosphere around it. And that's the way things are. Contentment is not a gift. It is a learned skill. Another test. How many of you have practically forced yourself into saying, I'm going to be content in this situation. There's nothing I can do about it. It's in God's hands. I'm giving it to him, so I'm going to be content. Come on now. I know there are some of you that have been that way. We've had to practice this in our own life in the last couple of weeks. You know, uh, we, had, we had to learn to be content with what God wanted rather than what we wanted. And the, the great thing about that, and, and I love this about this past week, for those of you who didn't know, I, I, I uh, shared with you last week that by January 31st, there was a possibility of me being homeless. We've sold our property. We had not purchased a property at that time. But I can gladly tell you now, we have purchased the Petersons' house. See those two chairs back there? Uh, that used to be occupied by the Petersons. They needed to sell their house. We needed one. It wasn't the house we wanted, but it's the house God had for us, and it was a blessing to them. It's going to be a blessing to us. But in the midst of that, here's what happened. We decided for ourselves, we are going to be content with whatever God wants. And let me tell you something. When we got a hold of Ron on the phone and all of these arrangements were made, Brenda and I both voiced We felt such a peace, such contentment. Was it the house we wanted? No. But it's what God wanted for us. And when we went back and looked at it, we decided, you know what? This is the house that we want. And we felt such peace. That, friends, and I'm not saying that to say, oh, Brenda and I have, we have, Arrived at spiritual maturity and and we've learned to be content. We're still working on that, trust me. You know, I I remember hearing years and years ago when, I don't even remember how many hostages were taken hostage in Iran. You remember that? Uh, Back during the Carter and Reagan administration, or Carter administration and first day of office, uh, they were released. I I read a story about those hostages years ago. And it stuck with me all these years. They indicated that a few short hours after they were taken hostage, they had to learn to survive. And they just adapted to the fact that, you know what, this isn't what we want, but we're going to have to learn to get along in this environment. We're going to have to learn how to survive. That is contentment. No, they weren't thrilled with the idea of being taken as hostages. But they realized that they had to go along with the situation as it was, not what they wished it would be. That's how you you practice contentment. Contentment doesn't mean that you don't care what happens. It's a sense of of self-sufficiency, knowing that God is on the throne and that he's going to take care of you because you belong to him. That's your source of contentment. (laughs) How many of you remember those old carnation milk commercials that showed the contented cows? <laughs> you have to be my age in order to remember those or more. But, but the carnation milk used to put these commercials on TV and it'd show these beautiful cows out in this, this lush pasture with, with grass up to their knees, you know. 
And, and they, were, they talked about how carnation milk is made from contented cows. Now think about this. Do you think those cows wanted to be inside a fence? I don't think so either. Eventually when that grass got eaten down to where they could barely pull the nubs out of the ground, they wanted to get outside the fence where the grass was still tall, right? But they decided, because the fence was there, they were going to be content with it, and so they, they did what cows do. They ate grass, they got fat, and they gave plenty of milk. Contentment. Verse 12 indicates that Paul was flexible. This is an off-quoted verse. But I I want us to notice in this verse the extremes that Paul talks about. He's saying to us, you know, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I find myself. But notice the extremes that he points out. He says, in humble means or in prosperity... Whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry. How many of you like me get a little bit hangry when you're hungry? He says, I learned to be content whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry. In affluence or in poverty. In any and every situation, I have learned to be content. Now, that's my translation. But Paul has what I'm going to call flex. He isn't uncomfortable in the presence of kings, noblemen, nor is he uncomfortable in the midst of dung heaps or outhouses. And what I found down through the years, friends, is that most Christians are more comfortable with less than they are with more. Now, let me explain that. How many times have we encountered Christians of great affluence who for some reason feel the need to apologize for their apparent success? I know you're thinking, okay, try me. But, but my guess is that you've been living meagerly for the better part of your life. If by some miracle you could be blessed with some wealth, my guess is that eventually you would have to explain to you, you would feel the need to explain to your friends the reason for your wealth and apologize for your new found, newly found wealth. I, I've never understood why some people feel as if they have to hide what God has abundantly blessed them with for fear of what someone else may think. Where does that idea come from? Suffice it to say that's a mark of immaturity. It, 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 it says that to us that immaturity also is a lack of balance or inability to be flexible. Verse 13, Paul tells us of his confidence. I mentioned earlier the idea, I think I used the term self-sufficiency. A better way to say it is Christ-sufficient. There's a translation of this great 13th verse, we, we've all known it for many, many years. We use it. We say it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But there's a great translation of this 13th verse that says it this way. I can do all things through Christ who keeps pouring his power into me. Wow. Wow. I love that translation. This, this statement that the Apostle Paul is making, it's not some kind of phony piety. He didn't have to continually remind people of Christ working in him because 
He lived his life in the strength of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means that I can live in Christ's strength. He's the one supplying the power. He's the one supplying the provision. And the absolute secret of the confidence that Paul has is found in this verse. And if you don't believe that, do this. You see this word him right there? I can do all things through him. Take that word out and replace it with anything else that the world says is important. I can do all things through riches. I can do all things through fame. I can do all things through knowledge. I don't think so. Only through Christ. Now that doesn't mean that, I mean, if you put the emphasis on I, I can do all things. That doesn't mean that that we don't need other people because as we've mentioned before in this series, we can't live isolated, independent, invisible, invincible lives that are oblivious to others. We need other people. That's why the church is so important. That's why the family of God is so wonderful. You know, I would like to think that in this family, particular local family of God, that any of us could at any time of day or night call someone and say, hey, I'm, I'm really burdened. Can you share this burden with me? Can you pray for me? Or perhaps, and, and I, would, I would even like to think that this is true, I'm really struggling with a sin in my life. Can you help hold me accountable? That's what the family of God is for. And we need each other for those kinds of things. And to illustrate this, Paul moves on to verses 14 and 15, and there he talks about this thing called personal compassion. The Philippian church responded to Paul's needs because they had compassion on Paul's situation. I mean, think about it, friends. The church in Philippi was non-existent before the Apostle Paul came there. A relationship with Jesus was unheard of until Paul shared the good news of Jesus with them. And now years later, Paul's in prison. The church in Philippi hears about his need And they respond to his need out of compassion. What I found is, if you have a need, there's no need to over-dramatize it or exaggerate it in order to be administered to. Just letting people know, hey, I have a need. (laughs) I got to tell you this. You know how some of you who have been in the church as long as I have, you remember how every service we would ask for prayer requests in the middle of the service? You remember those days? And it might take five or ten minutes, but everybody would make every need known that they had to everybody else. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, We've moved on from there for a variety of reasons. I won't share my specific reasons with you. I'll just say that I did that. The last time I did that was probably in 1997 or 1998. And as always, I said, are there any prayer needs before we go to the Lord in prayer? And a lady raised her hand, and she said, 
you really need to pray for Vern, my husband. He's got a bad case of diarrhea. That was the end of that. We, we don't do that anymore, but, you know, we, we should be able to just say to someone, I have a need. Whatever the need is, whether it's Vern's problem or whether it's your own unique problem, just leave it at that. I mean, if you feel the need to share, that's perfectly fine as well. But here's what happens. I have found that there have been occasions when people use a prayer request service to begin a gossip session. Hello? Oh, well, so-and-so, they're struggling. What do you suppose it is that they're going through? Well, I'll bet it's this. God help us in that. Just express your need. Don't over-dramatize it. Don't exaggerate it. But my point in all of this is there is power in the quality of compassion. Notice that Paul mentions the city of Thessalonica. Here's why that's important. The city of Philippi and the city of Thessalonica were rivals. You know how rivalries work. Uh, Liberal, Garden City, and athletics. In my case, it was Satana and Sublette. We were rivals on the basketball court. We were rivals on the football field. We were rivals in academics. You name it. We hated each other. I say that lightly. We didn't hate each other, but that's what we said when we were kids. Such is the case with Philippi and Thessalonica. Except in those days, in that culture, the rivalry that Philippi and Thessalonica had was in the area of economic structure. Thessalonica always came out on top. They were a much more wealthy city, had much more means, and when compared to, to Philippi, uh, Thessalonica was up here on the, on the, the, the wealthy side, and, and Philippi's down here. But here's why Paul mentions it. It was the church in Philippi that in spite of their poverty kept giving to support the Apostle Paul. Now understand, Paul hadn't been in this church in Philippi for years. As a matter of fact, he left the city of Philippi to go to the city of Thessalonica to evangelize them with the good news of Jesus, which he did, and which they were evangelized. But it was the church in Philippi that always brought up the lower rung of economic stability that out of compassion kept giving to support the Apostle Paul. You know, I'm just going to take a real short rabbit trail here for a second. This is how you need to picture this. Suppose that a missionary whom you were supporting moved his mission field from Baghdad to Hawaii. You're already thinking ahead of me. 
I've been around the block in ministry long enough to know that there are some who would support that missionary while serving in Baghdad, but the minute he transitioned his or her ministry to Hawaii, they would say something like this, well, I'd like to go to Hawaii. And cut off the support. Why am I saying that? Because that's exactly what the Philippi church could have done when Paul moved to Thessalonica. Well, he, he evangelized us and now he's moving over there with those uppity Thessalonicans. So we don't need to worry about Paul anymore, right? No, they did. Because they had this heart of compassion. They, they sent gifts to Paul on more than one occasion. And he tells us, you are the only church that has continued to support me. And that's in spite of your poverty, you found compassion on my need. One missionary I used to know, said it this way, and it's stuck with me all these years. He says, even the godly can't live on air. Now, as spiritual as you may think ministry is, people in ministry have to have support in order to survive. This is not a real theological quote that I'm getting ready to give you. As a matter of fact, it comes from a, a legendary entertainer of times gone by. Her name, Sophie Tucker. She said it this way. From birth to 18, a girl needs good parents. From 18 to 35, she needs good looks. From 35 to 55, she needs a good personality. From 55 on, she just needs cash. Maybe not real deeply theological, but you get my drift. Paul says to them, I'm not seeking a gift from you. I'm not seeking it. And, and this, is where, this is where the skeptic will, will always say something like this. When they say it's not about the money, it's always about the money, right? Paul says, I'm not seeking a gift from you to support my need. You know, friends, again, I've seen it happen over and over for years in the church that when the church leadership finally convinces the flock that they're not trying to fleece the flock what will happen is this. The church will become generous because the, the leadership has, try, has been successful in showing them what abundant living is all about. And I'm very proud to say to you this morning, Trinity Church is a great example of that. We've modeled that. You've modeled that. We continue to model that. You know that you're not trying to be fleeced. Our leadership has, has kept that. And let, me, let me just explain it for those of you who may not understand what I'm talking about. This is the first church that Brenda and I have ever pastored that is a debt-free church. You may not, since you're not in ministry like I am, you may not understand how important that is. Some of the churches that we pastored, I mean, to service their debt was so overwhelming, 
I as a pastor couldn't focus on ministry because I had to focus on making, allowing the church to pay its bills. I, 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 Michael, you might remember, but I think one of the first questions that I asked you when we were talking on the phone for the first time four and a half years ago, is the church debt free? And I knew when he said, yes, we are. I mean, obviously, we have monthly bills. We pay those every month. But when he said that, I knew that God was speaking to our heart about making ourselves available to be your pastors. Because I've lived with that pressure in seven prior churches. And let me tell you what, friends. This is just my opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. I don't think a church should ever go in debt to provide its facilities. I just don't. I think that we have a faithful God who will provide our needs according to his riches and glory and who will bless abundantly as we obey consistently. And the evidence is this. You built it as the need, as the money was available. You didn't go borrow and put yourself in debt to have to service a debt load. Now, I know that's a rabbit trail from where I've been talking. But friends, here's the important thing. Paul was telling the church in Philippi, thank you for your compassion and contributing to my need. And the reason he was telling them that is because you have done that, you are going to experience the abundance of God in your life, in your church, and as you grow in the Lord, you're going to see God abundantly supply your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's it. Um, why did I take that rabbit trail? Here's why. Paul says in verse 18 that he himself has been well supplied. You know, there are, there are so many ministries in the world today that have no ounce of integrity behind them. I'm not going to point out any specifically, but you're, you know of them, you've heard of them. No, no integrity whatsoever. There's, there's so many ministries that have, have ripped off their supporters, their congregations with financial mismanagement. And, and as a result, all ministries, even those that do have integrity, we all suffer because they've not been honest. They've not acted with integrity. Those who have raised eyes of suspicion in the public eye have given the rest of us the title of being money hungry in the eyes of the world. And I, I, I apologize if I sound a bit defensive about that because I can't help but feel that if that were not the case, the family of God would have nothing but trust in its church. And leadership in its church would be fully trusted when it comes to handling their finances. And again, thanks be to God, we have that here at Trinity Faith Church. Yeah, give yourself a hand. You deserve it. Come on now. That's something to be, that's something to be not sinfully proud of, but be proud of it. You understand what I'm saying. 
And then verse 19, and I close with this. It's a verse that we've read and quoted time and time again. But there are three key phrases in that verse 19 that I want you to notice. The verse says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Notice three phrases. My God, every need of yours, and his riches. Those three phrases. I find it interesting that this letter to the Philippians is a letter to the Philippians, and it's not from the Philippians to the Apostle Paul. He's encouraging them that he has learned that he has a God who has incredibly abundant riches and who will supply all of his needs. That, my friends, is why Paul can be so affirming, so contented, so flexible, so confident, because he knows That his God is going to supply his needs according to God's riches. And God's riches has no end. He owns everything. It's all his. I firmly believe, friends, that most believers, most probably most of us even here today, who know and follow Jesus... They want to grow up into spiritual maturity. How many of you want to grow up in spiritual maturity? Almost every hand. I I don't ever remember meeting a believer who who wanted to stay immature. Um, How do we do it? Let me just add to that before you take that wrong. I've never met a a believer, a Christian, who wanted to stay immature. I've met some who did stay immature. But it wasn't because they planned to. It's because they weren't doing the things necessary to grow up. So how do we do it? How do we do those things? How How do we get past me, myself, and I and move into spiritual maturity? Well, as the worship team comes back, I've come to the conclusion that there are three places to look. Look within and release. Look around and respond. And look up and rejoice. Can I just briefly explain those to you? Guys, I'm sorry to bring you up here to make you stand for just a minute, but I want to I explain those things. See, I, I want to I be considered by... The people who know me best, and Jesus at the top of that list, that I'm a giving person, that I would give anything, anything and everything that I could in order to help someone in need. So when I say look around and respond, I mean that that we need to, to see the needs that exist all around us and respond to them. Whether it's at home, whether it's in the office, whether it's at the church, don't wait for someone to tell you that they could really use your help right now. Just do it. You know, if you're an honest, 
aware person, you know where help is needed. And, and you know if you're the only one who, who can make the decision to respond to that need. Look up and rejoice. Every day, look around and find something to rejoice in. Whether it's the weather, whether it's your good health for that day, whether it's the fact that God has provided you with a job to support your family, whether God has answered a prayer, whether you have a child whom you see growing in the grace and admonition of the Lord, look up and rejoice in that. Look up and rejoice. That's the big one. Now, I'm guessing that there are some of us in this room this morning who are going through some stuff. I, uh, I've heard many people say down through the years, if so-and-so would just make me happy. Can I just tell you that asking someone else to make you happy is, is one of the most unfair expectations you can ever put on somebody. You need to become independently joyful. And, and I'm just, as I said, guessing that there are some who are going through situations that exist not only in the corporate church on a global perspective, but in your individual lives. You may be here this morning and you're saying, Pastor, everything that you have said to this point in the message makes no sense to me whatsoever because you don't know what I'm going through. Well, you're right. I don't know what you're going through. But God does. And what you're going through may feel to you like it's a calamity of enormous proportions. My message is this. We have a Jesus who's not sitting idly by at the throne of grace in heaven, oblivious to what you're going through. <laughs> so do you just praise God when his blessings are flowing? Do you not praise him when the blessings aren't flowing? You know, I mentioned that. I'm, I'm reminded of, of the Old Testament person, Job. If you've ever heard the story of Job, Job lost everything in the space of a day. Lost his family, lost his possessions, lost his livestock. Everything that he had was taken away in a very short space of time. So I think I can say it's probably true that none of us in this room, at least, have ever faced the same kind of calamity that Job faced. But you know what Job said in the midst of his calamity? He said in Job chapter 2, verse 10, I have received good from the hand of the Lord. Can I not receive hardship as well? <laughs> and, and, and then... To make it even more impactful, after Job had to live for a significant period of time with the effects of this calamity that affected him and his household, 
He concluded in Job 13, 15 with these words. Even if God slay me, I will trust him. Wow. By the way, that story of Job is the oldest story in the Bible except for the story of Adam and Eve. That's how long ago Job faced those kinds of calamities. Even though God slay me, he had his wife saying, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? You miserable person. Why don't you just curse God and die? No. Even though he slay me, I'm going to trust him. That, my friends, is spiritual maturity. And as you do an inventory of your own life, do you have that kind of spiritual maturity? Is it possible that as you've grown older, you have found that you have faltered in a matter of growing up? You've just grown old? Here's why I brought this message to you this morning. I want us all to grow up in the Lord. I want, you, I want every one of us in this room to join the life of the faithful. Because as one of the faithful, you're going to discover that life, life is greater than your own immediate circumstance, whatever that might be. Join the life of the faithful. Grow up in the Lord. Would you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, this morning, so grateful, God, that I don't know, nor do I need to know every situation, every circumstance, every calamity that may be going on in the lives of these people in this room this morning. Because, God, I am so comforted by the fact that you do. And you care. And you have the ability to not only do something about those situations and calamities, but you have the ability to help us get through them. You'll make a way where there seems to be no way. You can turn the desert into a beautiful garden. That's just who you are, Jesus. And Lord, in the midst of our calamities, we may not feel like you're working, We may not see the results of the work that you are doing. But as Job said, we trust you. So we're not going to worry. We're going to commit everything to you in prayer. And as an expression of our faith, we're going to thank you in advance for what the eye does not see. But what we know brings us hope. Our faith. Let's sing Waymaker, Jacob, just the chorus.